Welcome to Er Garcia, a podcast of work, faith, theology, and economics, arranged and presented by Brendan Byrne. and welcome to Ergasia. My name is Brendan Byrne and I have the pleasure of being your host. In this episode we continue our exploration of the book Hard Work Never Killed Anybody, How the Idolization of Work Sustains This Deadly Lie by John Bottomley, published by Morningstar Publishing in 2015. In the last episode, We explored Bottomley's conception of how work and life can be renewed through the prophetic imagination, beginning with the need for deep listening to the pain of both the victims and the perpetrators of injustice. In this episode, we examine Bottomley's extension of the concept of the prophetic imagination to the integration of the experience of the victims of work-related harm into the healing and transformative possibilities of the biblical witness. However, because the subject matter is so detailed and extensive, I have decided to cover it in two episodes rather than one, and you might even see the irony of that as we proceed on our exploration. But for now, however, let us begin Ergasia episode 27, Hard Work Never Killed Anybody, Part 9a, Work and Life Renewed, Prophetic Dreaming, Integrating Experience and Scripture. Bottomley begins with a challenging proposition. If scripture is the meta-narrative that calls us to a deep listening to the presence of the Spirit of God within the chaotic violence of the world, then the task of the church is to integrate that calling into the experience of those who suffer injustice and harm. This task emerges from the fact that within the experience of those who suffer work-related harm, lie the signs of the redemptive spirit that gives voice to lament, that stirs hope for justice, and that connects the broken and despairing to new patterns of wholeness and abundance. Only by paying attention to these signs through deep listening can the church activate the prophetic imagination that will enable it to enact God's mission for healing and justice within the conflicted and dehumanizing context of modernity's construction of work and economy. Bottomley himself gives witness to this reality through his account of five specific experiences that took place over the course of his ministry and which are articulated and reflected upon by the scriptural witness. Through these experiences, Bottomley and his colleagues have been able to engage in the task of restoring justice to a world harmed and fractured 
by work-related trauma and injustice. Experience 1. Temptation Bottomley recounts the experience of a man who even as a child loved all things to do with construction and who wanted nothing more than to one day work in the construction industry. As an adult, this man realised his dream and became a construction worker, and so devoted was he to his job that he would often work on his rostered day off in order to help his employer meet tight construction schedules. One day this man was working on his rostered day off when, in fading light at the end of a long day, he backed his pickup truck into an unseen colleague who was walking behind the vehicle, killing him instantly. From that day onward, life became a living death for this man, and the work-related joy that had once defined and filled his life became nothing more than a constant reminder of suffering and grief. For Bottomley, this incident is an example of how the world has forgotten the limits that exist in relation to what can be achieved through work. Ours is a world that says hard work is the pathway to personal fulfilment. The ideology of work promises us a measure of control and security in our daily lives. This belief is so pervasive that our mythologizing of work and its redemptive powers has become the cultural norm of all industrial societies. As such, we ignore the terrible reality that, instead of giving life, work can instead become the seat of injustice and death. For bottomly, this reality constitutes the spiritual crisis of modernity. The promise of work is that it will, in effect, make us gods. If we work hard, we will earn our freedom, our security, and our well-being. The Faustian bargain between humankind and the idol of hard work is that in return for unthinking devotion, we will be gifted meaning and worth in life. We are sold the myth that our meaning and worth lie in our own hands, so long as we continue to believe the lie that hard work gives only life and never deals death. However, the promise of the good life for which we yearn exists only to ensure the future of the idol itself. As such, it has produced a spiritual blindness to the bitter fruits of our misplaced trust in hard work. In Australia alone, nearly 3,000 people die every year from all work-related causes. Our devotion to the idea of hard work and its alleged saving graces blinds us to the terrible human toll it exacts every day. For bottomly, the scriptural witness that speaks into this destructive reality can be located in both the book of Genesis and in the gospel according to Matthew. In the second creation account in Genesis, Bottomley argues that the biblical witness makes clear that God created humans with a facility for work, to utilize the resources of creation and to manage them responsibly. From this relationship between work and creation, humans could enjoy the fruits of the natural world and find life through their labor. 
However, God also placed limits around that labor. The prohibition on eating the fruit of the tree in the center of the garden was a prohibition against endless labor, against the despoiling and exhaustion of the reserves of nature and the depletion of human life. Human labor and its productions are not the be-all and end-all of human life. Flourishing and fullness and richness of being are to be found beyond what we can merely make or generate through hard work. In this context, the idol of hard work and its false promises of security and autonomy are rather like the serpent in the garden. The serpent's promise to the woman that she can attain godlike powers if she eats the fruit of the forbidden tree are the same as the idol's promise that if we only work hard enough, we can take our destiny into our own hands and liberate ourselves from what it means to be human. Both the serpent and the idol of hard work shift the focus from the necessary limits that are placed on labor to the promise of what we can achieve through our own efforts. The terrible irony, of course, is that once both the woman and the man eat the forbidden fruit, they realize all too late how thoroughly they have been deceived. In realizing their nakedness, they come to understand how terribly their commitment to their own self-realization has left them exposed and vulnerable. In the same way, in modernity, in believing the promises of the idol and in swallowing the lie that we can ameliorate the dehumanizing realities of hard work through the implementation of occupational health and safety systems overseen by experts and backed up by punitive regulation and compensation payments, we have in fact made ourselves vulnerable to injustice and exposed ourselves to death. We have overthrown the limits of work because we believed doing so would turn us into gods, but the betrayal of that dream by the idol's false promises has left us with the paradise lost of blighted lives and despoiled environments. Likewise, Bottomley's reading of the account within the Gospel according to Matthew of Jesus' tempting by the devil, illustrates how the idol of hard work tempts us with its promises. If we just work hard enough, if we just assert ourselves strongly enough, if we just build enough alliances and work the numbers cannily enough, we'll be able to rid ourselves of our frustrations, our anxieties, our insecurities. We'll be able to get what we want will be able to co-opt the talents of others for our own purposes, will be able to climb the ladder of power and prestige. Matthew's account of the temptation of Jesus reflects the fact that the Jews of Jesus' day lived under foreign occupation and that many looked desperately for a Messiah who would be a new King David a conqueror who would drive out the imperial overlords and restore the kingdom of Israel. Jesus' own temptation was thus to become exactly the kind of saviour that people wanted, the hero of popular imagination who would make everything great again. 
Jesus understood, however, that the salvation people required was God's gift of love and justice. The security, freedom and well-being the people yearned for could not be achieved through his efforts alone, nor through any amount of human labour. And three times, as the devil presented Jesus with three different scenarios of what he could achieve, Jesus drew the limit upon human labour and rejected the idea of unlimited autonomy grounded in unlimited work. In modernity, however, we all too often find it easier to put our trust in the promises made by the idol of hard work, to ignore the limits on human labour, to exercise power and to justify our conduct in terms of the common good, a good that we alone can achieve. Money, technology, power, these are the scenarios through which the idol of hard work tempts our compliance. And in taking up these temptations, we set aside the limitations that point to our dependence upon relationship for human flourishing, relationship that is itself grounded in God's justice and mercy. In other words, Jesus' temptation by the devil and his resistance to that temptation wasn't a simple matter of Jesus piously doing what was good or right. Rather, in rejecting temptation, Jesus was pointing to the limits that are embedded in our very humanness, limits that articulate our need not for power or autonomy, but for grace. And grace is not something we can achieve through endless labour. This grace is articulated in what happens in Matthew's account once Jesus is done resisting the devil's temptations. Jesus' resistance costs him dearly. He is left feeling depleted and exhausted. But he is not alone. The emptiness that he feels as a consequence of his resistance is filled by the agents of God's mercy who fill him with renewed life and grace. Through his resistance, Jesus has re-established the limits on human work that were overthrown by human pride and presumption. In doing so, work once more becomes a sphere of interdependence and mutual cooperation between humans, rather than an assertion of egoistic pride and ideological overreach. In modernity, accepting the limitations on work also enables managers and workers alike to take a more holistic approach to workplace health and safety that goes beyond the self-justifying assurances of the OHS industry or the law. But Jesus' own experience of temptation and the costs of his resistance remind us and reminds the church that the key teachers of this wisdom are often those who have been harmed by works injustice. In their healing, these people have discovered the importance of both personal and social transformation. This invites the church to engage in a radical reassessment of its understanding and practice of pastoral care and its engagement with the world of work. Likewise, 
OHS policy and practice would benefit from listening to and including the voices of such people in the forming and implementation of occupational health and safety regulations. Within the experience of such people and their suffering at the hands of the OHS system lies a hard-won understanding about the temptations of a quick fix and the myth that simply by getting people back to work we are somehow overcoming harm. By resisting that temptation and its associated mythologies, we can model a way in which governments, employers, employees and unions can better discern the complexity of the painful issues that need to be addressed, and thereby open a space in which God's life-giving grace can renew human work in fruitfulness, health and wholeness. Experience 2. Identity After nearly a decade in parish ministry, Bottomley joined with several other ministers to form an agency for urban ministry. Bottomley himself was employed to begin a social research and action program for this agency. The agency was committed to understanding modernity's construction of work and its impact on human life. As a result, over time, it built up an ongoing consultancy in the field of health and justice at work. Bottomley recalls an occasion when he was contracted to undertake research into nurses' attitudes to pain management within the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne. Bottomley studied the literature around the subject of pain management following surgery and treatment for burns and wrote a review of what the literature revealed about pain management practices. Shortly afterwards, Bottomley found himself in the role of patient rather than researcher as he underwent surgery to correct a serious heart condition. Bottomley woke in the intensive care ward unable to move and feeling utterly helpless. Every couple of hours, two nurses would come to Bottomley's bed and working together would gently turn him over from one side to the other in order to prevent the build-up of fluid in his body as a result of remaining too long in one position. Bottomley found himself deeply moved by the nurses who were strangers to him. Their compassionate and reverent handling of his inert body convinced him that he was being cared for by angels. After he left hospital, the following months of convalescence provided Bottomley with the opportunity to engage in a process of deep reading and reflection on the subject of care of the soul and the role of solitude in human life. This process felt renewing and refreshing to Bottomley, but on the day he returned to work, he discovered that while he was away, 
an organizational restructure had resulted in the resignation or redundancy of the entire team of which he had been a member. Contemplating the work files that had been packed away and the blank screen of his computer, Bottomley burst into tears. The shock to the system engendered by Bottomley's discovery of the fate of his work colleagues made him realise that the carefully constructed identity he thought would bring a new beginning to his post-surgery life had in fact no power to withstand the cold reality of his workplace environment. But in the wake of his lament and the sense of loss he experienced, Bottomley also felt his cry had been heard by the same Spirit of God that had attended him while being cared for by the gentle intensive care nurses. In the wake of the shattering of his illusions, he discovered a quiet strength that arose from the integration of his whole self for life and work. This integration was the product of Bottomley's recognition that prior to his surgery, he had acquired a lot of information about God and work that was essentially propositional and technical in nature, and which resided exclusively in his mind. But in the exhausted vulnerability of his post-surgery experience, he came into a new appreciation of the depths of his God-given humanity. Human hands had held his heart during the operation, and afterwards human hands had gently moved his body to ensure his recovery. Through human compassion, Bottomley felt the movement of the spirit, and the truth of God's presence in his heart and soul and body, as well as his mind. But in the process of his physical convalescence, Bottomley had overlaid this new understanding with his old assumptions and approaches to God and work. His reading and reflection were an exercise not of integrating the new understanding he had glimpsed into a holistic self-identity, but of trying to fit this new insight into the pre-existing mould of his head-oriented self. And so the shock which Bottomley experienced upon his return to work was a consequence of his falling back into old habits and assumptions about knowing God by gathering information. The quiet strength that subsequently emerged arose from the realisation that Bottomley could trust that he was known to God, heart and mind, body and soul. For Bottomley, this experience is reflected in the depiction of the meeting between Jesus and the Pharisee Nicodemus contained in the Gospel according to John. In the narrative we are told that Nicodemus comes to see Jesus at night, which at the time was the usual time for discussions between Jewish scholars. In doing so, Nicodemus is acknowledging Jesus as a scholar worthy of serious attention, a fact reflected in his opening remarks, in which he makes clear that he has come to learn about Jesus and the source of his authority with the people. In other words, Nicodemus has set out on a fact-finding mission 
one in which he acquires knowledge and thus power through information. Jesus, however, upsets Nicodemus' plans with his strange response. None can see the kingdom of God without first being born from above. But the word which Jesus uses for above is ambiguous, and Nicodemus mistakes Jesus as saying that one must first be born again, a suggestion that makes no logical sense to his ordered scholarly mind. Despite being an expert in the law of Moses, a point of pride for the Pharisees, the head information which Nicodemus seeks about Jesus is simply not present in his confusing response. But it is confusing only because Nicodemus is focusing on the wrong word. The key to Jesus' response is not whether one is born again or from above, but the fact of birth itself. In the social historical context in which Jesus and Nicodemus lived, birth status was the most important factor in determining a person's social standing, their position of honour within the communal setting. God's realm, however, was considered to be above all earthly concerns. Thus, in saying one needed to be born from above, Jesus was saying one needed to be born from the realm of God. One thus born would be a child of God, occupying the highest possible honor status. Jesus' response proposes a radical realignment to human life, one that subverts and overthrows the human categorizations of honor and identity. Instead of such things being determined by the accident of birth, they are the product of the gift of the Spirit, which incorporates humankind into the family of God. This gift in turn arises from God's active love for humankind, the intensive care that seeks us out in our vulnerability and suffering and makes us whole again. We are the recipients of an unmerited grace that cares nothing for the identities that are constructed for or by us, because it recognizes within us only our fundamental identity as children of God. For bottomly, this encounter between Jesus and Nicodemus is a reminder that it took the traumatic helplessness of his surgery and the dehumanizing environment of his workplace for him to realize that he too had accepted modernity's contention that the world of work was a head-only space, part of the rational public domain that restricted feelings and emotions to the realm of private life. The ideology of hard work makes knowledge the basis of power as well as the foundation of our identity as workers. Yet it was only when Bottomley's mind had been emptied by two traumatic experiences that he was able to understand the poverty of the identity he had constructed for himself. It was only in the helplessness engendered by the destruction of his previously vaunted self-understanding that Bottomley found himself able to receive God's healing. 
He was thus able to pick up the pieces of his shattered understanding of work, self and faith and come to a new sense of wholeness grounded in trusting in Christ's life-giving promise for the whole of human life. That promise is that we are known to God and accepted by the unconditional love of God. We need not construct our identities around our work and the power we think that comes to us through work. Learning to trust enables us to access a liberating grace that sets us free from the ideology of hard work and enables us to serve those who have been harmed by the idol's death-dealing mythology. But it also presents the church with a challenge to recognize the need to pay attention to work as a mission field and the way in which its own status as an employer utilizes work as a means of constructing identity. In particular, the need for the church and its agencies to understand work as a balance between productivity on the one hand and as the location of social and spiritual relationships on the other. Fruitful workplaces understand the rich and diverse meanings which human beings attach to their labour, the impact which the loss of or failure in work has on human life, the need for lament, and the need to nurture reflective, integrative practices that develop creative, liberated workers. Experience 3. Relationship In 2004, Bottomley undertook research with employers who had been prosecuted by the Victorian Work Cover Authority following a workplace death, which research was subsequently launched at a public briefing conducted at the Uniting Church's Victorian Synod Office. The launch was reported in the local media, and the following day Bottomley received a phone call from the Victorian Synod's media officer. The media officer reported that he had been contacted by someone within the Uniting Church's National Assembly Office and berated for their involvement in the launch of Bottomley's research. The caller wanted to know what business had the church getting involved in the issue of workplace deaths, given that, in their opinion, the church knew nothing about what went on in industry? The caller concluded that the launch had made the church look stupid and that it wasn't the church's place to be involved in such matters. For Bottomley, this incident reinforced his understanding of the extent to which modernity has divorced the public world of work from the private world of faith, as well as the extent to which the church had allowed itself to become co-opted by this ideologically driven separation. But in a wider sense, it also reflected the suspicion 
with which church and business regard one another and their desire to not be corrupted by the other's beliefs and values. Thus it was that when Bottomley and his colleagues applied for permission to present evidence to a royal commission investigating the deaths of two workers in an explosion at an oil refinery, the application was angrily opposed by industry representatives who insisted that the matter had nothing to do with the Uniting Church, who couldn't in any event possibly know anything about the issues being investigated. In other words, the objection of the industry representatives mirrored the objection from the Uniting Church National Assembly official. The irony was that Bottomley himself had a deep and rich experience of industry and the world of secular work. In 1982, after he concluded his first parish ministry, Bottomley became unemployed because no new placements that met his domestic needs were at that time available. After three months, Bottomley accepted a position carrying out research into the effectiveness of the reforms implemented by the federal government to the work organisation at the Williamstown Naval Dockyards. The change from suburban ministry to inner-city industrial worksite came as a considerable shock to Bottomley. No one, however, knew that Bottomley was an ordained minister. As he waded his way through the piles of government and union reports at his desk in the union shop steward's office, the union officials began to gradually open up to him, talking to Bottomley about issues ranging from workplace problems, their fears about the future, and their views about the union's leadership. Through these conversations, Bottomley learned a lot, even if he didn't always understand the jokes they told or the intricacies of the workplace culture. A decisive moment came one day when a union delegate sat at Bottomley's desk for his morning tea, which consisted of cheese sandwiches made not with bread but with a well-known brand of segmented cracker biscuit. The delegate asked Bottomley if he'd like one of the sandwiches. Still feeling slightly awkward and out of place, Bottomley nonetheless accepted. The delegate held up one of the sandwiches, broke it along its vertical segment, and offered half to Bottomley. In that moment, Bottomley experienced a profound feeling of grace and acceptance, the breaking of the segmented cracker having the same effect as the breaking and sharing of bread at Holy Communion. The Gospel according to John speaks of an encounter between Jesus and a Samaritan woman while he and the disciples were travelling through the region of Samaria. The significance of this lies in the fact that there were and still are deep-seated divisions and mistrust between Jews and Samaritans for long-standing historical and religious reasons. Thus, when Jesus, in the account from John, asked the Samaritan woman for a drink, his request is offensive to both Jews and Samaritans alike. Thus it is that the Samaritan woman's initial response is understandably dismissive and incredulous. Jesus responds, however, 
by making it clear that he is willing to drink from the well's bucket if she draws it up for him, an act which puts him in danger of becoming ritually polluted. This begins an exchange between the Samaritan woman and Jesus in which she crosses the dividing barrier between them in response to his initiative, while Jesus responds compassionately to her troubled personal history. Their shared willingness to respond to one another with generosity and grace deepens their relationship, turning the public space of the well into a deeply personal space that enhances understanding and mutuality. In just the same way that Jesus' offer of living water to the Samaritan woman overcame the barriers between them and broadened her horizons as to what the fullness of life might look like, so the Union Delegate's offer of a cracker sandwich broke open Bottomley's limited understanding of working people's lives in what was a fundamentally sacramental personal moment conducted in the public sphere of the workplace. In that moment, Bottomley likewise understood that he had a new understanding of his own call to ministry, one that mirrored God's desire for intimate communion with people in the whole of their lives. The gospel proclamation that Christ is the saviour of the world reflects the fact that Jesus moves through the barriers that divide and compartmentalize human life, including the barriers that separate the world of work from the life of faith. The world of work is thus claimed by God as much as any other sphere of human life. It is the arena for the enacting of God's pastoral care and healing grace. And as with the Samaritan woman, the inclusion of work in the sphere of God's activity liberates us to understand human fullness and flourishing in ways that go well beyond the demeaning and dehumanizing utilitarianism proclaimed by the ideology of hard work. The company we work for and the industry we work in are transformed to reflect the values and relationships of the new human community called the Kingdom of God. Through God's initiative in Christ, justice and mercy have claimed a deep attachment to our work and to the future shape of work in human life. And it is at this point that we will pause and conclude this episode of Aragasia. We still have some way to go, and in our next episode we will continue this examination of Bottomley's concept of the prophetic imagination and the integration of the scriptural witness with the experience of workplace harm and the transformation of that harm into healing. In the meantime, however, to leave your thoughts about this podcast or to offer any suggestions or ideas for future subjects, please go to the webpage at www.ergasia.podbean.com 
That's www.ergasia.podbean.com or go to the podcast pages on Facebook and Twitter. I hope to have the pleasure of your company for the next episode. I am your host, Brendan Byrne. Goodbye for now. You have been listening to Ergasia, a podcast of faith, work, theology and economics, arranged and presented by Brendan Byrne. For more information, please go to www.ergasia.podbean.com.